0: Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you for coming back for part three. Uh, At the end of tonight, it'll be three down and two to go. Now, last week, we were looking at Revelation chapter six, and some of it made for quite difficult reading. If you remember, it was all about the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, opening six of the seven seals on a special scroll. And this scroll was outlining what world history was like and would be like so long as men and women continued to rebel against God and think that they could run the world without him. Seals 2, 3, and 4 depicted the second, third, and fourth of the so-called Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, riders who appeared to depict the history of a fallen and broken world as it always has been, is now, and will continue to be for a period. And then the sixth seal appeared to focus on the end, with the wrath of the Lamb finally judging evil. So six seals so far, one to go, the seventh seal, and that one will be opened in chapters 8 and 9. So, in chapters eight and nine, the seventh seal is finally opened and it takes the form of the blowing of seven trumpets. So, from seals to trumpets. And like the six seals earlier, these trumpets also depict further catastrophes involving environmental disasters and loss of life. So, what we've got here then is a repeated cycle seals, then trumpets. And actually, later on, there are seven bowls as well. But as we said in our very first session, such repeated cycles are part of the very careful structure of this book. And I suggested to you that the intention is not to give a sort of chronological sequence or discernible timeline. Rather, the intention is to present basically the same scenarios but with a different emphasis or focus each time. I use the analogy, I think, of match of the day with different shots of the same goal being shown one after the other. So then we need to ask a question crucial to our proper understanding of this book. What is the message of this twin cycle of disasters, actually a triple cycle? Firstly, the disasters are the inevitable consequences of evil and human sin. If you like, these twin cycles are announcing and re-announcing the warnings of scripture. The warnings of scripture that have said from the very first page that the wages of sin is death to Quote St. Paul. Or again, to quote Paul: the harvest you sow is the harvest you will reap. This basic principle or law is written, to the fab- written into the fabric of the universe. And it's telling us that evil has tragically a built-in kickback. And human sin kicks back against nature. Human sin affects the natural order and the environment. Creation is pulled down and put out of joint by human folly and greed. That's the first message of the twin cycles. But there's a second truth about these divine judgments. They are only partial. Seal four, the pale horse with its rider death, they were only permitted, if you recall, to harm a fourth of the Earth's populace. Not literally 25%. The figure, although it seems a lot, is symbolic of a small proportion relative to the whole. Now, when it comes to the trumpets in chapters 8 and 9, the devastation is more severe. One third of the world and its people are affected, so up from a quarter to a third. But again, the destruction is limited and restrained. Why? Because these calamities or warnings, just could bring humanity to repentance. So they could be vital wake-up calls, but sadly that doesn't seem to happen, or at least not on any great scale. In your workbooks, would you just like to look at page 16 and the very top of there, top of page 16, where there's a quotation from chapter 9 and verses 20 to 21 at the conclusion of six of the seven trumpets. What does it tell us? The rest of humankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols, nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts how tragic so although increasingly grievously afflicted human hearts remain stubborn and rebellious and they do not turn back to God so the question arises then if catastrophe won't win people's hearts back to God or some people's what will and the answer of the book of Revelation is the faithful and persistent witness <laughs> of God's people, their proclamation of the gospel by word and deed down the centuries. And so here I suggest we get to the very heart of this enigmatic book, follow me if you can, deliberately placed between seals six and seven and again deliberately placed between trumpets six and seven, deliberately placed between both, we find a precious interlude or counter image. And this counter image in both places is about the Christian church. It is about the Christian church's ultimate safety and security, that's chapter seven, and it is about the Christian Church's proclamatory gospel role in bringing many to repentance and salvation. That's chapters 10 and 11. So two precious interludes or counter images to offset the darkness of the seals and the trumpets. The seventh trumpet, a bit like the sixth seal, announces God's final judgment on evil and sin, and his total triumph. That's in the second half of chapter 11, and we'll come to it last thing this evening. But deliberately inserted into the first half of chapter 11 is an extraordinary picture of the Christian church in action, with the result that many give glory to the God of heaven. So although so much of the world does not turn to God and repent, the Christian church ensures that some will. Let's just get this clear in our minds. It may help you to look in your workbook at um, page uh, 13. And you'll see that I've just done a little sort of outline there. And this may help you get it fixed in your minds. Can you see that? Worksheet for Session 3A, it says... So chapter 6 is seals 1 to 6 and mainly about divine judgments affecting 25%. Then in chapter 7 counter image 1 the church of god safe and secure. Then chapters 8 and 9 we have seal 7 which is trumpets 1 to 6. Trumpets equals warnings. That's always the purpose of a trumpet. In, oh, in, certainly in the Old Testament, trumpet equals warnings. And here it's divine judgments affecting a third, but no repentance. Incidentally, those trumpet catastrophes bear considerable resemblance to the plagues on Egypt in Exodus. There's so much of the Old Testament in this book of Revelation. Okay, then chapter 10, verse 1 to 11, 14, counter image two, the church of God on earth effectively proclaiming the gospel, bringing repentance. Not without trials, as we'll see, but nonetheless effective. And then finally, at the end of chapter 11, trumpet seven, God's final judgment on evil and the total triumph of Jesus Christ. Hope that helps just to give you a kind of root map, so to speak. So our task this evening is to look at those two counterimages, both representing the church but in different modes. First, the church of God, safe and secure despite all that is going on. And this is chapter 7, and we're going to read together, so would you turn to page 12 in your workbook, please? Page 12. And what we're going to do is read verses 1 to 5. So you'll have to be alert, folks. 1 to 5, because we don't need to read all those names in 6 to 8. Okay, so 1 to 5, and then 9 to 14. All right? I'll give you a lead. Okay, here goes. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on earth or sea, or against any tree. I saw another angel descending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to damage earth and sea, saying, do not damage the earth or the sea or the trees, until we have marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the people of Israel, from the tribe of Judah, 12,000 sealed, from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000, from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 stopped. And verse 9, after this, I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood round the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, singing, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, robed in white, and where have they come from? I said to him, Sir, you are the one that knows. And he said to me, These are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Okay, we're going no further at the moment. Incidentally, those two choruses have led to a multitude of great Christian hymns and songs, haven't they? Maybe you just recognize some of the words. Now then, I suggest to you that a quick reading of chapter 7 could leave us with the impression that we've got two distinct groups here. In verses 1 to 8, they exactly numbered the 144,000 who seem to be very Jewish or Israelite. And then in verses 9 to 17, the great multitude that no one could count, who are clearly Gentile, or mainly Gentile, as it says, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So is this some kind of spiritual apartheid in God's kingdom? No, because a closer reading of the text reveals that both groupings are pictures of the same redeemed community of God, albeit viewed from different perspectives, a fresh camera angle, if you like. So let's consider the first group, the 144,000. Incidentally, that exact number is mentioned again in chapter 14, but there's no time to visit that now. Now, you probably know that Jehovah's Witnesses, once upon a time, took this number absolutely literally. They said that the number of people who would be ultimately saved in heaven would be just 144,000, a tiny number compared with the world's total population down the Christian centuries. And of course, they taught that the saved remnant would be all JWs. Well, that was fine for them until 1935, when the number of JWs rose to 144,001. So they had to adapt their doctrine to say that only 144,000 would be in heaven reigning as kings, the elite if you like, whilst all the other JWs would be on earth, safe, but only on earth, not in heaven. Now I put it to you that such teaching highlights the danger of taking everything in Revelation literally, and especially the numbers. This number, 144,000, like the number seven that we've already met, is surely meant to be a perfect number or a complete number, symbolizing the whole essence, 12 times 12 times 1,000. And actually, if you think about it, you and I use numbers in a similarly symbolic way. So we talk of, the, of life as being three score years and ten. We don't mean a literal 70. Rather, we mean the number stands for the general human lifespan or Shakespeare's seven ages of man. Another way of looking at it is think of this 144,000 as being a stylized diagram of the church. A bit like the map of the London Underground that you see. That is a stylized diagram, isn't it? Like every diagram, it sacrifices one kind of accuracy for another. So the underground map sacrifices scale and realism for clarity. Maybe there's something of that in the 144,000. But it is a symbol for the complete church. And I think there's an important message here. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, I wonder how many people are going to get into God's kingdom. Or will so-and-so be there? I hope so. Will so and so be there? Very understandable concerns, especially when it comes to relatives and friends. This exact perfect number tells us, I believe, that when the roll is called up yonder, God will get it exactly right. Perfectly right. Just as the London Underground map gets it exactly right in terms of stations, interchanges and routes. So the Lord of 144,000, in inverted commas, will ensure that no one will be harvested into his kingdom who should not be there, and no one will be excluded who should be there. So the final harvest will not be like harvests on earth, where agricultural machinery untidily leaves good plants at the very edge of fields. So 144,000... Surely God's very own perfect census. But why are they described in such Jewish terms? 12,000 from each of the 12 named tribes of Israel. And the answer is this, that because throughout the New Testament, the Christian church is always seen as the successor to the Old Testament nation of Israel. Or better, perhaps, the fulfillment or filling out of the Old Testament covenant people of God. So, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul describes all those who glory in Christ Jesus, lovely description of a Christian, isn't it? All those who glory in Christ Jesus, he describes them as the circumcision. Not those who've been physically or outwardly circumcised, but those whose hearts have been inwardly circumcised. How? By repentance and faith in Jesus as Saviour and Lord, with the spiritual surgery of repentance that that entails, the circumcision. And this doctrine surely has some interesting spin offs. One famous Christian leader, I'm afraid I can't remember who, once described all Christians as honorary Jews. Have you ever heard that expression? All Christians as honorary Jews. If that's right, it clearly forbids any form of anti-Semitism, doesn't it? It doesn't mean, I suggest, that we can't be critical of the modern state of Israel in its treatment of Palestinians. Doesn't suggest mean that. But it does mean that we will have a respect for Jewish people and culture, and particularly our Old Testament. There's another crucial point here. The 12 groups of 12,000 each conjure up an image of soldiers in battle array, battalions, squares. So here, if you like, is the church militant on earth, as the Anglican prayer book puts it. Before we leave the 144,000, I must just tell you about what happened to one person who attended this course in Stratford last year. She was so fired up by this session three that she decided to sit up in bed and read the entire book of Revelation from beginning to end. When, in the small hours, she finally arrived at the last verse of chapter 22, she looked at her watch, and the time was 1.44 (laughs) a.m. So she was quite convinced this was definitely a divine book. So what about the second group, then, or second picture of the same community, verses 9 to 17? 17. As we said, this group is comprehensively international and uncountable. Isn't that lovely? And we're reminded of God's promise to Abraham that his descendants would be uncountable, as uncountable as the grains of sand on the seashore. And this includes not his physical descendants only, the Jews, but his spiritual descendants to us. But where are these Group? Answer, they are standing before God's throne and in front of the Lamb, verse 9. Contrast the first group in a sense. They were the soldiers on earth, but these are those who are now depicted as being in heaven because, in a sense, their conflict is past. Actually, I think it's a picture of the Christian church not just then, but now. There is a sense in which we are already in heaven with our conflict past, as the heavenlies see it, even though in reality we're down here still fighting. It's both and, not either or. Crucially, both groups, and they're one and the same really, are safe and secure, although that is depicted in different ways. So back to the first group. They are described as being divinely sealed. Did you see that in verse 3? An angel calls out, don't damage the earth or the sea or the trees. In other words, spare the seals and the trumpets just for a moment until we've marked the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. In other words, although the horsemen of the apocalypse just described will unveil unspeakable horrors, including death and damage to the land and sea, the people of God, Christ's people, will be kept eternally, ultimately safe and secure. That's the message of this. The horsemen may bring destruction, and the people of God will be caught up in it, as we said last week, but they are ultimately and essentially indestructible. What a, what a wonderful truth that is. So why sealed then? Why sealed? Well, a little bit of social history from the first century AD. You see, they didn't have nice little name tags which somebody in the household could sew onto pieces of clothing to delineate ownership. They didn't have that. Instead, an owner would use his personal seal, often on his signet ring, to delineate and confirm ownership. So, imagine a wealthy merchant who'd bought a barrel of grain in the market. He wouldn't take it home himself, no way. No, he'd he'd send his servant to collect it. But how would that servant know which of the many barrels his master had purchased? Answer, he would go along lifting the lids of all the barrels until he found the imprimatur of his master's signet ring that his master at the time of purchase had punched into the top of the grain, sealed, that's what this means. So by putting a seal on the foreheads of the whole church militant on earth, God is saying quite clearly, I have purchased you. You're still in the marketplace, but I have bought you, and therefore ultimately you cannot be touched or harmed by any of these disasters all around you. As I think I said in last week, this doesn't mean that you and I are complacent about these disasters and sit back and say, well, it's all the judgment of God and their own fault. Of course not. But it does mean that we needn't be phased by them too much. Jesus said, do not be anxious. Don't be troubled unnecessarily or in the wrong way because you are sealed. And just imagine, can you? the reassurance that this could have brought to John's readers reeling under the onslaught of Roman persecution, let alone all the other hazards of life at the time. And imagine what this may mean and has meant already to the countless number of Christians systematically pursued to death recently by Islamic State and Boko Haram and al Shabab, And think of the encouragement this can and does bring to Christians currently being harassed and discriminated against in countless ways in India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, Laos, Northern Sudan, Egypt, Iran, North Korea, China, and the former USSR Central Asian republics. The list is endless. And some people have worked out that actually Christian, the persecution of Christians is at its most intense now than it's ever, ever been. So suffering they may be, and grievously, but the Lord has sealed them as his own. They are safe and secure eternally, whatever happens physically. And incidentally, I hope you know that if you're a Christian tonight, then this divine sealing is yours too, even if you're not being persecuted or harassed. Because when we believed, God sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit etched into our souls. So, if the first group, the 144,000, are safe and secure by sealing, how is this safety and security described for the great multitude? And the answer is by some of the loveliest and most tender verses in the book of Revelation. Turn to page 13 again, would you? And we're going to read chapter 7, verses 15 to 17. Page 13 at the top there. But before we read them, I wonder if you would make two alterations to the text, please, because I don't like this version of the Bible in two places. So in verse 15, will you replace the word worship, line 2, with the word serving or serve for this reason they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night I prefer that translation and in the third line of verse 15 would you please replace the slightly bland shelter them with the phrase spread his tent over them because that's what the Greek means. The one who is seated on the throne will spread his tent over them. Okay. Now, here's a challenge that when we read this, we read it with the altered version, all right? So let's go. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne... Will spread his tent over them. They will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear. From their eyes, I did say, didn't I, this is one of the most tender books, tender parts of a book that is not always so tender, and it just may be that in our little study together now, some of you who've lost loved ones and maybe sometimes think, "Well, what is it like up there or out there or wherever you know these verses, I hope will reassure you and warm your hearts that your loved ones in Christ are okay, or more than okay. So, at the risk of being a bit twee, we might be able to pick out five words, all beginning with S, five words that describe the safety and security, there are two more S's, of the church triumphant in heaven. Let's do it. Let's do it in the workbook there on the bottom of page 13. I suggest to you that this multitude is serving God day and night in his temple. S for serving. In other words, they're not going to be bored. And they're not just sitting there or standing there in Laura Ashley nightdresses and singing. They are serving. And we'll come back to that in Revelation 22 then the kingdom of God is going to be exciting and active, I believe, serving. Secondly, verse 16, they are sheltered, that was the original word, from any further tribulations. They are sheltered from any further tribulations. But I love the alternative. God will spread his tent over them. How Middle Eastern that is, isn't it? Serving, sheltered. Then third, verse 17, shepherded. Well, yes, but just look who is the shepherd. The lamb. Any farmer here got a lamb that is the shepherd of the flock? I doubt it. This is one of these glorious biblical anthropological paradoxes that in God's kingdom, the lamb can be the shepherd. And then fourthly, verse 17, this is pushing it a bit, but I suggest that they are suckered at springs of living water, S u -C c o u r e d. They are suckered at springs of living water. Remember that in the Middle East, of course, where the Bible came from, water equals life. No water equals death. That's why water is so often used as a, a, a symbol of salvation. Rivers and streams. We'll come back to that in week five. And then fifthly, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Well, how about serene or smiling? Serene or smiling? Serving. Serving. Sheltered, shepherded, suckered, serene, or smiling. Every tear wiped away by God himself, the one indescribable who was on the throne. Yes, he may be indescribable, but nonetheless, he takes the Kleenex and does the wiping himself. Another extraordinary Bible anthropological paradox, and yet one that should arouse our wonder and amazement. Okay, so a picture of God's people sealed and sheltered, pictured as two redeemed communities, but in reality one, safe and secure, between the traumas of the first six seals and the seventh in the form of the six trumpets. So question. We thought about those who've gone before us in faith, but how can you and I be sure tonight that we are part of these communities? Well, go back to verse 14 at the bottom of page 12, would you? The elder said to me, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal or tribulation They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is basic knowledge for some of you, but maybe not for all of us. For you and I to be part of God's eternal kingdom, there has had to be a washing. A washing. Why? Because you and I cannot possibly hope to stand before God's dazzling throne if we are scantily dressed in the soiled and tattered rags of our own morality or virtue. Does that make sense? We cannot possibly hope to stand before God's dazzling throne if we are scantily dressed in the soiled and tattered rags of our own morality or virtue. To put that differently, we are simply totally unfit for what the Apostle Peter once called the home of righteousness. Great description of the kingdom of God, that, the home of righteousness. No, you and I need the perfect righteousness of Christ the Lamb. And when he was slain, when he gave his life, when he shed his atoning blood, he, as it were, dressed in our filthy clothing and exchanged it for his white robe, which he gave to us. The great exchange, illustrated a bit, of course, by Barabbas in The Passion Story. Ever thought about that? It's a wonderful illustration of the great swap or exchange that Jesus does for us. A washing. In his recent book, Under the Thorn Tree, Richard Buse tells a dramatic story from his father's days of Christian ministry in Kenya, Kenya as it was then, at the time of the Mau Mau uprising, the 1950s. Many Kikuyu Christians refused to take the Mamau oath by drinking the blood of a pagan sacrifice. And for this refusal, hundreds of them paid with their lives, brutally murdered by their fellow tribe's people. But this is what they said as they perished, witnesses tell us. Quotes, we can never partake of this pagan blood, we who have shared in the precious blood of Jesus. The blood of the Lamb washing. But to be surely and safely in God's kingdom, it isn't enough, is it, just to have received Jesus' cleansing? Vital first step, but not enough. Haven't we heard all along in Revelation the challenge to professing Christians to be faithful, to persevere, and to conquer? And that's the second thrust of verse 14. These are they who have come out of the great ordeal, the elder says to John. The great ordeal. Roman persecution, well, yes, of course. But the phrase is far broader than that. Embracing as it does the spiritual struggle or battle that is an integral part of being a true disciple of Christ in an ungodly and rebellious world. Do you find the Christian life difficult out there, Monday to Saturday? If you do, good, we should. Because we are to live through what the Bible calls this great ordeal, being a follower of Christ in a world that by and large has turned its back on him. Jesus was quite plain about this. He warned his followers, he said, in this world you will have trouble. And the Greek word for trouble is the same as ordeal here in Revelation chapter 7. It's the word actually that does suggest what a threshing machine or threshing platform does to the grain as it goes over it. Imagine that, a great heavy platform being dragged over grain, threshing and threshing and threshing. That's the word here, ordeal. It's par for the course, friends. Jesus insisted that we, his followers, take up our cross and follow him. So as someone has once said, there can be no crown for us without a cross. I wonder if we're prepared for that. Let's have a moment of quiet. The tape that I've suggested is coming later, not now. I got it wrong. Okay, just word to the back there. Let's be quiet. First of all, let's thank God that our fellow Christians enduring huge persecution and harassment in many parts of the world, let's thank God that they are sealed, invisibly but sealed. They're safe. And let's pray that tonight that will strengthen them, however fierce the ordeal And let's thank God too that that 144,000 just testifies to God's perfect accuracy. There will be nobody in the kingdom later who shouldn't be there and nobody excluded who should be there. And maybe inevitably tonight, many of us think of faithful Christian people who've gone before, our parents, grandparents, former ministers, vicars who helped us, Sunday school teachers, perhaps younger friends who seem to have been called earlier than normal. And let's just rejoice with God that they are succored and shepherded, sheltered. And wherever the rubber hits the road for us in terms of the ordeal, Is it being in a hostile family people who don't like us being Christians? Is it cynicism and worse at work? Is it just the barrage of negative comment about Christianity that seems to assault us from every side? Dear God, help us to be faithful so that it will be said of us that we are coming out of it and have come out of the great ordeal. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Well, so much for the church safe and secure and sealed, but what about the church proclaiming the gospel? That's session two, refreshments first. Thank you. Wonderful. Uh, Just through refreshments so speedily. I don't think I've ever been to a church that can serve refreshments so fast as this one. So well done, because we have got quite a lot to get through in part two, and I want to make sure we finish, if possible, by half past nine. Um, A number of you here remember with great affection Norman Warren, who was vicar here from 1963 to 1978, and you'll know that he has been in hospital and uh, quite poorly, very poorly in fact, and then was back home. I'm sorry to tell you that he is back in hospital. There have been some sort of complications and that's upsetting for him clearly and difficult for Yvonne and the family. So I thought we might just pray for Norman now if we may. Dear Lord we do thank you for Norman and Yvonne and their incredibly faithful witness here so many years ago bringing this church from the brink of extinction to new life. And we thank you for Norman's ministry in music and as an archdeacon, latterly at Snitterfield and now at St Mark's. And we do pray for him. We give him into your hands. We lay our hands upon him now by faith. And we'd love to see him physically healed. But we know, Lord, that may not be your ultimate plan so we ask for wholeness in heaven in your timing the complete healing that comes from passing from death to life and please watch over Yvonne travelling to hospital twice daily and with her family Lord glorify your name for Jesus' sake Amen Okay, we're going to look at page 14 and to give my voice a rest, um, Katie is going to read for us and she's going to read to you, so we'll give your voices a rest as well. So page 14, Revelation chapter 11. Katie, thank you. Have you got it there in front of you? Okay. Uh,
1: The two witnesses. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, come and measure the temple of God and the altar, and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, members of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet, and those who saw them were terrified. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, And the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming very soon. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thank you, Katie. You didn't seem very sure that this was the word of the Lord just then. And if so, I'm not surprised, actually, because um, this is a very mysterious chapter, isn't it? Um, Perhaps the strangest that we've so far come across in our study of Revelation. So we need to be very clear what this chapter is and what it almost certainly is not. Firstly, what it isn't. It's not, I suggest, a chronological sequence outlining the history of the Christian church From its beginning to the end of time. So in that respect we shouldn't look for one single literal historical fulfillment of those stated periods of time. The 42 months, same as 1260 days, and the three and a half days. No, rather here what we have is a kind of parable dramatizing the nature of the church's witness and the consequences of that witness at different times throughout the whole period from Christ's ascension to his ultimate return and triumph. So this chapter is about the period we're in now in one sense. So whenever we hear of the gospel being preached anywhere at any time, that event is in... The 1260 days or three and a half year spell during which the two witnesses are said to be prophesying effectively. Similarly, if we hear of a period or place where the church appears to have been stamped out, eliminated, that place or event is located in the three and a half day spell when the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over the corpses of the murdered two witnesses. So, we might apply it to the apparent eradication of the church in China, immediately following the communist takeover in 1949. But if, however, after apparent annihilation, the church surges back to life, as in China and the Soviet Union, then we have a fulfilment one of many of the resurrection stories that came in verses 11 and 12. Now, if I'm right, and of course I can't be sure I am, some commentators, this is where i got it from, then that might just make some sense of this very bizarre chapter. So what we've got here is a coded message to all Christians everywhere and anywhere Your experience will forever fit into this mixed pattern of fortune. Just keep going proclaiming the gospel and ultimately there will be vindication. So with that introduction, let's plunge in. Verse 2, John is told that the nations or the Gentiles will trample over the holy city for 42 months. What on earth is all this about? Well, friends, I've written out my talk word for word for you here because I think it will be helpful for you to follow it. So if you look on page 16, you'll find my exact text and maybe that'll just help you grasp it. An explanation then of the 42 months or the 1260 days, verse 2, John is told that the Gentiles will trample on the holy city for 42 months. This is a reference, probably, to a particular event in Jewish history. In approximately 160 BC, Antiochus IV, the Gentile Greek king ruling over Palestine, marched his soldiers into Jerusalem, and desecrated the temple. This period of horror went on for three and a half years, or 42 months. The period was ended when the Jews rose up in revolt, the famous Maccabean Rebellion. The Greeks were defeated, and the Jews gained their independence for a limited time till the Romans showed up. So the message is that there will be periods of horror and tyranny and sacrilege, expect them, but they will definitely end because they will always be for only a limited duration, the symbolic 42 months, so a message of hope. Come back to listening to me if you like. So if the opening verses, then, are all about what we might call the squeezing of the church, the church under pressure, the next section, verses 3 to 6, could be described as the spreading of the church, the advance of the gospel. And the agents of that advance are pictured as God's two witnesses. Why two Because Jewish law, as written in the book of Deuteronomy, required the testimony of two agreeing witnesses to establish a case. And you remember Jesus' trial before the high priest. Initially, they failed to get a conviction because they couldn't find two concurring witnesses. And verse 4 tells us that these two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Olive trees, the source of oil for anointing, the oil of the Holy Spirit, who or which will empower and bless all Christian proclamation. Proclamation that, like a lampstand, brings divine light into demonic darkness. That's the point of the imagery here. So every time you and I try, however timidly, to share our faith, to witness. I wonder if any of you have had a go today in some circumstance. Every time we try, however shyly, we may see ourselves standing like oil-yielding olive trees and lampstands. We are in this inheritance. Interesting thought. Now, verse 6, in cryptic terms, further describes the ministry of the two witnesses. They have power, we're told, to withhold rainfall and to turn the waters into blood, along with other plagues. How well do you know your Old Testament? Who did that kind of thing? Oh, yes, Moses, the plague bringer, including turning the Nile red, and Elijah, the rain stopper. 1 Kings 17 to 18, and yes, through his prayers, he stopped any rainfall in Israel for a period of, anybody guess, three and a half years. That's what it says in James chapter five, yes. So these two proclaimers or witnesses of the Christian gospel stand four square in the tradition of Moses and Elijah. And why is that important? Because these two Old Testament giants exercised enormous authority on behalf of their God in a distinctly pagan and hostile environment. And so, says John, by implication, that same authority is granted to God's people, the church, as and when they maintain a faithful witness to Christ and his gospel. Now, Jesus said the same, but in a rather different metaphor. When he said, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's the same idea. Some immense authority, although not like military power. And something of that authority is mentioned at the end of verse 10. We're told that the two prophets had been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. Extraordinary remark. This can't mean, can it, that Christians and the church are literally to torture people. That would be outrageous. No, it's a reference to the fact, perhaps, that the Christian message always, without fail, pricks people's consciences. It's a torment that's positive, and that's why it's often spurned, just as Moses and Elijah Pricked people's consciences, pharaohs eventually, and a- a- um, Ahab, what was his name? Ahab, thank you, yes, the king of, of, of uh, the northern kingdom. So, all in all, what we've got here is a picture of the Christian church in ascendancy. And church history bears witness to such periods. The great Methodist revival of the Wesleyan period, for instance, in the late 18th century in this country. Do you know that it was a time when many of Wesley's hearers were quite literally tormented by his message? They screamed as the conviction of holy sin, of sin came upon them. They shouted and fell down. They were agonizingly convicted of their evil ways and so driven to repentance and faith. I think that's what this is about. I wonder if, as 21st-century Christians in the UK, we've rather lost our nerve in this whole area. We've lost sight of our God-given role to prick our nation's conscience. Let's remember what Jesus said in his Great Commission at the end of St. Matthew's Gospel. He said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me, and by implication given to my witnesses who go in my name, all authority, therefore go to all nations, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Does your church, does mine, do you, do I, need to recover a certain boldness and confidence to be this ministry? A ministry in the mold of Moses and Elijah are prototypes. The squeezing of the church The spreading of the church. And by the way, you'll find these headings for you on page 17. So you might just like to have that ready. Um, Although actually I think we'll be looking at page 16 first. But anyway, the headings are there on page 17. So we move to our third heading, the silencing of the church. And this is the difficult passage, verses 7 to 10. Sorry, you probably will need to go back to verses 7 to 10. After periods of ascendancy or success for the gospel, there will be a backlash. Correction, backlashes, plural. Verse seven, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit. We'll hear more about him next week. He will kill the two witnesses. But where will this take place? We read, in the street of the great city, that is prophetically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Ah, so Jerusalem then, well, no, not literally because Jerusalem ain't in Egypt, is it? And in the book of Revelation, the great city is always a coded sobriquet for Babylon, alias Rome. So where on earth then is this place? Answer, it's any place any city, godless enough to persecute Jesus' missionaries in the pattern of the supremely godless act committed against Jesus himself in Jerusalem. Let me repeat that. Where is this place? It's any place, any city, godless enough to persecute Jesus' missionaries in the pattern of the supremely godless and committed act against Jesus himself in Jerusalem. You could say that the location is in any place that can be labelled Vanity Fair, as in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. You read it? Vanity Fair, where the illustrious pilgrim called Faithful is martyred. So the church in trouble and its enemies cock a hoop. But this period of adversity will be only for three and a half days, verse 9. In other words, symbolically, a much shorter period than the three and a half years, or 1260 days, when the church would be spreading by virtue of its witness. Finally, after the silencing of the church, what we can call the rising of the church, verses 11 to 13. But after three and a half days... The breath of life from God entered them, that is, the two witnesses, they stood on their feet, and those who saw them were terrified. So the defeat, or the silencing of the church, is relatively short-lived, as God sees the passing of time. Heaven has the last word. And you notice, it's all described in the past tense in these final verses. Why? Why? Partly because even in John's lifetime, the church has in places already risen like a phoenix from the ashes of persecution. But also because in the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament, writing about the future in the past tense is a way of saying this prediction is absolutely certain, beyond any doubt. So let's describe it as if it had already Happened. That's why you get a lot of prophecies in Isaiah, particularly in the past tense. It's to make the point that it's certain, so certain, we can use the past tense even though it's actually in the future. Now, as so often with Revelation, we need to avoid the trap of reading anything too literally. Remember we said all this is encrypted, lest it fall into the hands of the wrong authorities. So verses 11 and 12 do not mean that the enemies of the church literally have to see the literal resurrection of Christian martyrs before they are convinced. Rather, as they oversee or watch an execution, they have to perceive the master's participation in Christ's triumph over death. That is what convinces them. And Christian history is full of examples, isn't it? Of the courage and boldness shown by about-to-be-martyrs profoundly moving their oppressors. In some cases, leading to their conversion. Saul of Tarsus, an obvious example. Kill him, kill him, and offer his blood to the river god, shouted some Indonesian guerrilla fighters in 1947. As they seized Father Gabriel, a Bible teacher, and dragged him down to the riverbank. You follow the Dutch Christian religion, so you must be on their side. You're a traitor. As they reached the riverbank, Gabriel said, Please let me pray before I die. So beside the swiftly flowing river, Gabriel knelt down and spoke quietly with his God. He told him he was ready to meet Jesus and ask forgiveness for his fellow countrymen who were about to commit this murder. Then he stood up calmly and said, I'm ready. The officer was astounded. Never before had he seen anything like this. He tried to speak, but the words stuck in his throat. Finally, he stammered out, Go, go into the jungle, and don't let me ever see you again. A sort of resurrection and conversion, possibly fulfilling this prophecy of verses 12 and 13. Now, this section ends at verse 13 on what seems a pessimistic and negative note, redolent of the seals and trumpets. But actually, it's the very opposite. And you have to know your Old Testament to see this. And so once again, because this is potentially complex, I've given you my full script to make it easier for you to take it in. It's the workbook, page 16. The third section there, an explanation of the tenth of the city and the seven thousand people, chapter eleven thirteen. This section, as I've said, ends on verse thirty at uh, verse thirteen on what seems a pessimistic and negative note, and then in the next paragraph, an earthquake raises one tenth of the unspecified city, killing seven thousand people in the process. The terrified survivors give glory to the God of heaven, we read. Now, John's arithmetic is highly symbolic. In the books of Isaiah and Amos, a judgment from God would kill 90%, sparing only 10%, Amos 5.3. And our old friend Elijah found only 7,000 Israelites who had not forsaken Yahweh for the Canaanite god Baal one Kings nineteen eighteen. But in the vision John is given here, this is subtly reversed. Only one tenth of the city is damaged, ninety percent left untouched, and the seven thousand, the minority, are now those unsaved, leaving everybody else, the majority, saved. So what's the thrust of this scenario? It is the effect or the power of the church's witness. The two witnesses win through or conquer. Come back to listening to me if you can. Let's think about this for a minute. In our country and in other parts of secularized Western Europe, The church does seem to be in sharp decline, numerically at least, and as far as Sunday attendance is concerned, midweek's a different matter. And it's tempting for us to begin to doubt the uniqueness of the Christian gospel, maybe even to question our faith altogether. But as I'm sure many of you know, in other parts of the world, the Christian faith is exploding into dramatic growth. I mean, I've recently come back from Kenya. Where the Diocese of Coventry sent a team to the new Diocese of Capsarbet. On the first Sunday, we had a confirmation service, and it was only the confirmation service for two archdeaconries of the six in the new diocese. Bishop John, given 30 minutes' notice, confirmed 234 candidates that morning. 234? Children, teenagers, parents whole families, so numerically the church in Kenya is exploding. And that's happening in Southeast Asia as well. And the word coming out of the Middle or Near East is that Muslim young people are turning to Christ in their hundreds and thousands. Why? Because they are so disillusioned with militant Islam and its excesses. And this is really worrying the authorities in Iran for example. They are being reached of course mainly by Christian radio which manages to get over political barriers. So by inserting this vision at this juncture between the blowing of the sixth and seventh trumpet John has once again given us a precious interlude or counter image just as he did between the opening of the sixth and seventh seal the more negative messages of warnings to the unbelieving world are supplemented by the positives of the faithful preaching of the gospel. And so the stage is set for a bit of a climax, the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Let's read some of this. Uh, It's on page 15 in our workbooks. It's the end of chapter seven. Let's read this together. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign for ever and ever. Then the twenty-four elders, who sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, singing, we give you thanks, Lord God Almighty, who are and who were, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath has come, and the time for judging the dead, for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and all who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying those Who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Thanks be to God. You could say that if the book of Revelation can be divided into two acts, then this is the end of Act 1, as I said, a climax of a sort. John hears loud voices proclaiming the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah. In other words, Christ reigns. He has done so already, but here we see the curtain go up, if you like, the reality plainly revealed. The kingdom of the world, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and Messiah. What is the kingdom of the world? Well, it suggests to me power or power structures as occupied and manipulated by dictators, by multinational companies, by army generals, by media tycoons, by celebrities and by oligarchs. All of that. And all of these are subsumed into Christ, melting into insignificance and powerlessness as they are compelled to fall at his feet, submitting to his lordship. And yes, it's once and for all The heavenly loud voices went on to shout, Christ will reign forever and ever. Now, not surprisingly, after a declaration of such consequence, the 24 elders, representing, you remember, the church of both Old and New Testament, the 24 elders, flat on their faces, join in with the worship. And in their worship, they praise God for four great truths. And you might like to record these in the workbook on page 17. Let's have a look. You've got there, by the way, the five headings, four headings, haven't you? The squeezing of the church, the spreading of the church, the silencing of the church, and the rising of the church. Here now we're looking at filling in some things for the very end of chapter 11. Verse 17, you have taken your great power, so truth won. God is in total control. God is in total control. Next, verse 18, the time has come for judging the dead. Truth two, God will exercise righteous judgment. How important that is when so many judgments are unjust and false, aren't they? World earthly judgments, that is. Verse 18. The time has come for rewarding your servants, both small and great. So, truth three God will reward all those who have been faithful to him. God will reward all those who have been faithful to him. And verse eighteen. The time has come for destroying those who destroy the earth. Truth four, evildoers will be appropriately punished. The word appropriately is important there. Who are those who destroy the earth? Drug dealers, rapacious bankers, Illegal loggers, cowboy builders, and many, many more. This is all part of what verse 18 calls the wrath of God. Your wrath has come. And we tried to deal with that last week, didn't we? Explaining what God's wrath is and how different it is from our own petulance and often selfish anger. There's more about that back earlier back in your in your workbook. Just a little word about rewards in heaven. Some people slightly balk at this. You know, Can there really be rewards? Will there be grades in heaven? Well, I think one answer you can give is that no one is going to be disappointed in the kingdom of God. No one is going to be disappointed. But it just may be that the, the reward or degree of closeness to the Lord is, if you like, appropriate to what your earthly service was like or the degree of your maturity in Christ. C.S. Lewis uses the illustration about a child who asked what heaven was like, or his parents said, what do you think heaven's like? And the child said, oh, it'll be full of chocolate. And for a child, that was you know, 100% heaven, loads and loads of chocolate. For an adult or a teenager, it would be completely different and perhaps a little bit maturer than that. But the child got a hundred percent in terms of their ability and maturity, and maybe that's just an illustration of what it means when we talk about rewards in heaven. I don't know. So God's wrath, we've said, haven't we, what it is? We've got heavenly proclamation, heavenly worship, and then as a climax to the climax, creation itself joins in. Verse 19, and there came flashes of lightning. Peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Here are the elements giving their approval to the verdicts of God. The elements giving their approval to the verdicts of God. Can you think of another time in Scripture when they did that? Good Friday afternoon. The sky darkened to confirm the dark depths to which human sin had sunk crucifying the prince of peace so this must be the end but it isn't we're only at chapter 11 so we've got 11 more chapters to go yes we've still much to learn about the identity of that beast from the bottomless pit briefly mentioned in 11:7, and there's a lot more to learn about his defeat at the hand of jesus christ But for that, you'll have to wait until session four next week. I want us now, if we may, to just listen to a music track. You will recognize it, many of you. I hope it will help us take up the glorious climax to the climax that we've seen. And following that, we'll have the time for questions. So let's just listen for nearly four minutes, please.